Well, as I mentioned last week, we are setting the book of Ecclesiastes aside for, for this month, and we're going to return there after the, the first of the, of the year. And we're going to be looking at some specific passages about the Lord Jesus Christ, and I can think of no better, no better topic. Of course, the entire Bible is, is all about Him. There are three questions that you ask yourself no matter where you go in Scripture. The first question is, what does this passage teach me about God? Because God is the main character in the Bible, the, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the, the main character. And so sometimes we, we stumble over what's Abraham doing or what is, what's going on in Joseph's life or whoever it whoever it might be. And all of those individuals are important, but, but God has, has, has placed them on the pages of Scripture to reveal something about Himself. He's the main character in the, in the Bible. It's His revelation. He's, he's unveiling Himself, revealing Himself to, to us. The, the second question is, what does this passage teach me about, about man? Um, no temptation taken you, but such which is common unto man. And so what you will find going on in Abraham's heart is exactly the same thing that you'll find going on in your heart and in the hearts of everyone else because we are basically the same. So the passages do teach us something about, about mankind. The third question, though, is what does this passage teach me about redemption? Because God has a plan. He's had a plan even before creation. And that is to, to redeem people through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The passages that we're going to be looking at kind of laser focus. They, they bring us in direct contact with, with the Lord Him, Himself. This Christmas season, we're going to look at our Lord's life and focus specifically on three significant areas each over the next three Sundays, beginning today. But today, we're going to... We're going to look at His coming. Then we're going to look at His cross. And then finally, we're going to look at His crowning right before, before Christmas. Christmas is about the, the significance of God coming to earth. And that's, that's where we'll begin today. And then we'll leap to the end and look at why He came, which is the cross. And we'll wrap it all up with His promised consummation. And the common theme between all of these messages is going to be joy. We sing joy to the world, and in all three of these moments that we're going to look at in our Lord's life are for our joy, and I'll show you why. These truths should bring immense joy to your heart if you, if you think about it. And today we're going to look at the joy of His coming. And so I want you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. John, chapter 1. Because we have a very unique presentation of the Christmas story in John chapter 1. Matthew and Luke begin with what we would probably consider very familiar Christmas stories. And yet John's account has a Christmas story, but it's very, it's very different. In, in the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John, which is the Christmas story in John, there, there's no mention of Mary... There's no mention of Joseph, there's no mention of Bethlehem, no manger, no stable, no shepherds, no wise men, no star, no angels, no baby in John's 
Christmas story. But the story is there, nonetheless, in, in, in bold letters. And the summary can be found in one verse, in verse 14. Look, if you would, at verse 14, because that's what we're going we're gonna to focus on this morning. Here is the, the summary of the Christmas story of John, in John. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We sing the theme song of the Gospel of John during Christmas time, Emmanuel, God with us. And John starts with his theme. One commentator said, we celebrate this time of year because at this time of year, the infinite, transcendent, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, everlasting, unchanging, eternal God of the universe became a human being. And that's the message of Christmas. He is Jesus Christ, the one who came to us and brought God near. And I told you uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think, that in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, people say that there are three things that you should never talk about or you're going to divide company. That was religion, politics, and money. And Solomon covers all three of those in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. You know, as I thought about that, that, that common statement, I don't know that I, I find it to be entirely true. Some people are very willing to talk about politics and religion, sometimes too much, right? I would suggest a more surefire way to bring awkward tension into a conversation is to, is to mention what John does here in, in chapter 1. I've shared Christ with many people, as probably you have as well, and most of the time they're happy to talk about God Forgiveness, love, heaven, maybe even judgment. But the moment that you say His name, the moment that you say Jesus Christ, you get an entirely different reaction. People have no problem talking about God, but they have a lot of problem talking about Jesus Christ. The reason is Jesus Christ is the only name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. There is salvation in no other. That's what John says. That exclusivity, that accountability is offensive to people. It is the name of God, not in general, but, but specific. And, and people don't like that. The, the name Jesus gives no wiggle room. It, it defines, it places boundaries on who God is, and it, and it challenges the God people have created in their own mind. And it forces them to decide what they believe about Jesus Christ. Is He God? Or, or isn't He? The question about who is Jesus Christ is the question that every, everybody must face. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11 says, For this reason also God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name. This is in Philippians 2, right after the Philippians Christmas passage. Philippians chapter 2 in the beginning. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is God, He's Lord, 
to the glory of God the Father. Every knee, every tongue. And that divides men. It forces people to, to choose. Is he God? Is he who he says he is or is he not? It's the question that Jesus asked his disciples in a very familiar to answer that question. What about you? Who do you say? And in that passage in Matthew 16, we know that Peter gave the, the correct answer. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And people have been confronted with that question ever since. The same question. Some people will say Jesus was a, was a teacher, even others, that he was the Messiah. But the real question is, what, what does God say? Jesus himself claimed to be much more than a teacher. He claimed to be God incarnate. And if he was not, then there's no salvation that he can offer us. I mean, think about it. A teacher's lessons cannot pay for your sins. <laughs> a wise man may help you live life on the earth, but, but, it, but he can't raise you from the dead on the last day. And you need both of those. You need forgiveness of your sins, and you need raised from the dead on the last day. Only a Savior, and a Savior who is God, can do both of those things. The fact that Jesus is God divides all mankind. It's an offense for Muslims. It's a stumbling stone for Jews. It's a foolish myth to the educated. Hindus and polytheists gag on he's the only one. And yet the Apostle John knows that that truth, that Jesus is God and he's the Savior, it's the headwaters of the gospel. And he doesn't shy away from it. In his letter, he puts the identity of Jesus right up front on full display. This is not like um, subversive marketing, <laughs> where they kind of draw you in, reel you in, and then, then they give you the punchline after they, they've, got you, they've got, you, got you in the door. John declares with great force that Jesus is not someone with supernatural powers that reveals a way to heaven. He is God in the flesh. And the only hope for sinners to be able to reach God. He is the Word made flesh who, who dwelt among men. And that's the theme of, of John's Gospel, that Jesus is God. The most significant distinction, I'm sure you've, you've noticed that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are different than John. They're four Gospels, but those three Kind of, kind of stand apart, or, or we should say John stands apart by himself. It's, it, it's, it, it, it's different in the way that it's, it's written. But the most significant distinction about the Gospel of John from the other three is that the deity of Christ is taught in every chapter in the Gospel of John. And here, in chapter 1, it's, in, it's hurricane-force winds. John begins his entire Gospel with these words in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. No genealogy, no, we said, no story of a, of a virgin birth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John says in verse 1, literally... When the beginning began, the Word already was. Before creation, the Word was. 
John declares the eternality of Jesus Christ, who was God. He says very plainly, if you missed it in verse 1, that He is God. Look at verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. And look at verse 3. He's the Creator. All things came into being through Him. Whoever this, this one who was, who was there when the beginning began, who was God, who was with God, He, everything came into being by Him. He's the Creator. And apart from Him, nothing came into being. That, has come into being. And as the Creator, He gives life and light to all men. Look at what He says in verse 4. In Him was life. That, that's logical. If He's the Creator, in Him was life. Life comes from, from Him. In Him was life. And the life was the, the light of men. He gives life and light to, to all men. And when that Light came into the world in verse 5. It, it shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. What, what does John mean by, by darkness? Well, he defines it for us in verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light of men and darkness. Men and darkness are, are parallel there. The light shines into the, the realm of men. And in the realm of men, our world is dark because of, because of sin. And because of our sin nature, we can't even comprehend it. So we need someone to tell us about it. And that's exactly what he says in verse 6. There was a forerunner that came, John. And after John, John the, the Baptist. Then came John the Apostle. And then preacher after preacher after preacher announcing to the world of men, those who are in darkness, that the light has come. And John further defines who this, this light was that dwelt among us in, in verse 14. And that's the passage, the verse that we're going to look at today. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of His grace and, and truth. And our minds are drawn back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God, and then the Creator, and now this Creator tabernacles among us. He dwells among us. The eternality of Christ, the absolute deity of Christ, is shouted from the first chapter of John. As I said, if John was attempting to woo his readers into the story before he laid the heavy stuff on them, he, he, it's surely not a way to do it. But, but... If the deity of Christ is fundamental to the gospel and it brings salvation, then, then that's where we must begin, right? And that's what John declares in verse 9. If you receive the testimony about that, then you can become a, a child of God. There was the true life which... Coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came into his own, and his own did not receive him. Verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Just as Romans 1 says, God has given every man enough light so that we are without excuse for our unbelief. You're not going to be able to stand before God one day and say, I didn't know. Because God says that through the light of Jesus Christ and through creation, Romans 1, there's enough to where you have no excuse for your unbelief. 
But John's not writing his testimony so to render you without excuse. John's goal of his gospel is to give you a testimony about Jesus Christ so that you would believe. And that distilled testimony, as I said, is found in verse 14. And in verse 14, we find that Jesus reveals God to us in his coming in three ways. Three ways that Jesus reveals God to us. In one verse, the infinite God became personal in Jesus Christ. The unreachable God became present in Jesus Christ. And the incomprehensible God became plain in the person of Jesus Christ. God is personal, God is present, and God is knowable. God is, God is plain. Let's look at the first one. John says that Jesus came so that the infinite God would be personal. Jesus is the eternal God who became flesh, he says. It's, that's the epitome of love, by the way. And the significant difference from every other religion in the world. Don't buy the line that there are multiple religions, as in many, many. There, there are only two. John tells us how this happens. How does the, the eternal God become, become flesh? He tells us in verse 14. Look at verse 14. The Word became flesh and He, he dwelt among us. That, that's the personal aspect. This God became man. That's how it happened. He dwelt among us. Not man becomes God. That's what all the other religions say. That man becomes God. John says, the Bible says, the Lord says, God became a man. That's totally different. All other religions in the world teach that God is up there or out there, and we must use religious exercise or, or effort in some way to, to, to become like Him, to, to, to be pleasing to Him. You do something and you become more like God. You believe Mormonism, that's the whole goal, for you to become like little gods, and you can have little worlds and all of those other types of things. But whatever, whether it's Mormonism or, or whatever. Prayers, works, knowledge, sacrifice. Man becomes like God. But Christianity declares the exact opposite. It declares God became like man so that he could take our place. So that then we could be partakers of, of the divine nature. The infinite. The infinite God became personal. The phrase, the Word became flesh, likely doesn't have the same impact on us as it would have been in John's day. I mean, we've heard this passage a lot. And you should be intentional about, about allowing the, the thud of it to, to land on your heart. But when a reader would have laid his eyes on, on the word logos in, in, in Greek, he, he would have known exactly what John was talking about. Lagos was a word that was used by both Jews and Greeks, which is why it's perfect for John, who was a Jew, to use it to describe Jesus Christ. It meant something infinite, something limitless. To the Greek, the word Lagos was a title given to the, to the creative force, to the intelligent mind of the universe that ordered everything, kind of like a, like a deist would think today. 
Logos was an impersonal reason. It was the order. It was the intelligence. It was limitless. It was, it was, it was unknowable, but there was no limit to it. We know that there's something more, but we don't know who. And, and, or even if it is a who. The gods in, in the, in the Greek world or Roman world operated things by order from afar. The, the logos had emanated from them. This infinite order and reason. To the Jew, it was a word used to explain the the entirety of, of, of Yahweh's knowledge. It was God's wisdom that made sense out of, of everything. The, the Word of the Lord. The Logos was the Word of the Lord and all that it contained. Not just specific words, but it was an expression of God, of the true and living God of the Old Testament. It was the Logos, the the Word. It, it, it was, it's what Moses defined in Exodus whenever he asked the question to God, who, who are you? And God answered. Do you remember what God answered when Moses asked that question? God says, I, I am who I am. I am the one who is. I'm the eternally existing one. I'm the Logos. I, I'm everything. The Logos to a Jew was wisdom, light, understanding. But here's the key. That, that was above human understanding. It was past finding out. It was infinite. I mean, how can something finite grasp something infinite? And all of that would have been understood, packed into this, into this word. And, and so when the, when the reader would have, would have reached verse 14, and they, they would have read and the Word became flesh. They would have been staggered by that. The, the, the Logos, flesh became, that would be impossible. And if they would have read just a few, few words further, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, that would have been scandalous. How could God, who is impersonal, uh, impersonal unknowable, transcended, exalted above everything else, take on Himself creation? Especially come and walk among human beings, filthy human beings, sinful human beings. I can still remember reading this exegetical insight in my first year Greek class. John says the center of who God is, God's life and thought, all that He is, descended and entered this world and took up its form, its sarks, its flesh, in order to be known by us and to save us. C.S. Lewis said, Lying at your feet is a dog. Imagine for a moment that your dog and every other dog is in deep distress, and, and you love that dog. But would you put down your human nature and leave your loved ones, your job, hobbies, your art and literature and music, and choose instead of the intimate communion with your, with your beloved, the poor substitute of looking into a master's face and wagging your tail and able to smile or speak? He said Christ, by becoming man, limited the thing which, he, which was most precious in the world, His unhampered, unhindered communica- uh, communion with the Father. And He did that, John says, so you could know Him. Personally. The word flesh doesn't mean flesh like your sinful nature. It just simply, the, 
means a whole man, a human form. John says the eternal wisdom of God came robed in human flesh and lived among the ones by that same eternal wisdom He spoke into existence in the beginning. He was the second person of the Trinity. It's breathtaking. Yet it's absolutely what it says and it's necessary for salvation. It's called the doctrine of the Incarnation. Jesus always was and always was God, but in the Incarnation, He took upon Himself human nature. Prior to that, He didn't, he didn't have a human nature. By the virgin birth, conceived of the Holy Spirit, He humbled Himself, took human form, and now He continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. I told you Philippians 2, the Christmas passage, describes it. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even on the cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed, uh, bestowed on him the name which is above every name. It's a passage that we read earlier. John, Paul, God himself, Jesus himself says he's fully God and fully man and without sin. He's fully God to, to live the perfect sinless life and to do the Father's will without fail. He's fully man to suffer, bleed, and die as a substitute and as a sacrifice. He's fully God to love perfectly, to be omniscient, to have mercy, to hate sin. He's fully man to be tempted in all points like we and yet succeed without sin. What the incarnation declares is that God has not remained out there. He, he has not abandoned us to our sin. He came to us. The infinite God became personal. And the unreachable God became present. He's a transcendent God who came to us. He's personal, but He's also present. Look at what else verse 14 says. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He became flesh and He, he dwelt among us. Personal God. Do you know Him personally? I do. I know Him personally not because of my sinlessness, but because of His great grace. And He's present, so you can know Him personally. Jesus didn't, take, just, didn't just take creation upon Himself. He, he lived among His creation. He, he didn't just come at Christmas and receive a, a human body and, and then go back to heaven. He remained. He, he, he walked among us. John uses the... The word dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, it means to pitch a tent. It means to stay a while. It's a clear reference to the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Exodus 25 calls it the tent of meeting. Exodus 33 calls it the tabernacle of witness. You see, in the Old Testament, God told Moses that he would deliver his people and he would live in their midst. You remember Abraham? And then... Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Joseph, and the, the brothers of Joseph sell him into slavery in, in, in Egypt, and God has a plan there, and the famine comes, and the whole family comes out of the promised land down to Egypt, 
God keeps them there in Egypt as an incubator. They come in as one family. They go out as a couple million, and they go back into the land. And then God raises up Moses as the deliverer that would, would lead them out of the land of Egypt into the promised land. And God told Moses that when you get there, I'm going to live in your midst. You're not going to live in the land of Egypt. You're going to live in my land, and I'm going to live in your midst. And I'm going to live in your midst in a, in a tabernacle. And he would give them his law so that unholy people would know how to live and enjoy the presence of this holy God who's their God. And, and he would dwell in a tabernacle where they would meet him and they would learn who he was. Exodus 25, 8, I let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Exodus 33, 7, 9, Moses set, took his tent and pitched it outside the camp from far from the camp and called it the, the tabernacle of of meeting. There he taught them and he taught them who he was through the law and he taught them who they were through the same law and the sacrifices required. In the tabernacle, it showed Israel that they had to come to the tabernacle, showed Israel that God was in their midst. He was present. He was among them. But it also showed them there's a boundary separating them and God. They live in their tents and they come to God's tent. And they can only approach God's tent in specific ways. He is there, but He is holy. And they needed someone to stand between them and God. And they needed a mediator. And that was the priesthood. And it taught them that they needed a sacrifice offered by the mediator to atone for their sin so they could approach God. And when the tabernacle was complete, the glory filled the tent in Exodus 40. Moses finished the work, and then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to, to enter the tent. He was not able to enter the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. I like the way the King James says that. John says in the same way as God was present in the, in the midst of His people, in the, in the tabernacle... Now, God is present in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what John is saying to us in this verse. He is that very presence. And that's where we come to meet God now. We don't go to a temple. We don't go to a tabernacle. We come to the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's a difference, significant difference, between the tabernacle in the day of Moses and the tabernacle of Christ. He has, become, has come in the flesh. And He is the mediator. He, he didn't come in a, in a tent made out of cloth. He came in a, a tent made out of flesh. And He doesn't need a priest to mediate. He is the priest. He is the place that you come, not a tent or a temple. And He's the one who stands between you and God, not, not a human priesthood. And the other difference is He can take away your sin. In the tabernacle of Moses, the mediator had one job, and that was to offer a sacrifice to address the sin that separated men from God. But John says Jesus Christ became the tabernacle, the priest, and the sacrifice. He is the place we, we meet God. He is the one who stands between or brings us to God. And He is, is the sacrifice that removes our sin and the offense. And because He is the sacrifice... Your sins are not just covered, they're taken away. 
In the Old Testament, the, the people had to come to meet God and deal with their sins over and over and over. There was a joy for them to do that because it reminded them that God covered their sins. And it reminded them that there was a Messiah that was coming, but they had to do it every year, year after year after year. And it was a reminder that their sins remained. They were covered. They were right with God. But something else needed to happen. It's a key reason the Jewish people knew their Messiah had not yet come. Turn over to Hebrews 10. I'll show you. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10 tells us the fact that they had to continue the sacrifice in this tabernacle and then in the temple was a reminder that their sin remained, that it hadn't been taken away. It also may be why you, your conscience bothers you and you confess or you do penance or you do something, but then you're reminded of that same sin. If you never come to Jesus Christ, you, you shouldn't expect your conscience to be clean. Look at verse 1. For the law, since it was only a shadow of good things to come, John's telling us about the good things that, that now have come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, watch this, year by year, make perfect or complete those who draw near, those who draw near to God. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, year after year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's impossible for what happened in that original tabernacle to take away sins. That's what John, uh, or the writer of Hebrews is saying. The, the remedy is what John is pointing to. But look at verse 5. This is not on your screen, but it's in your Bible. Verse 5. Therefore, when He comes into the world, that's Christ talking about Christmas. When, when He comes into the world, He says, that's Christ, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure, meaning you were not fully satisfied with those. They, they didn't satisfy. They didn't fill up. They didn't complete. Then I said, behold, I have come in that body that was prepared. I have come to do your will, O God. And what was God's will? That Christ would come and that in that body He would go to the cross. And that's exactly what He did. And the first passes away to establish the second. And look at verse 10. By this we, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The work that Jesus does doesn't just temporarily cover your sins and leave you aware that you're still in your sins. The atonement of Jesus Christ takes away your sin and cleanses your conscience from dead works, meaning you know your sins have been dealt with and been dealt with forever. There's no other sacrifice, offering, work, or something or someone 
else that needs to come or to do anything. And Christ accomplished His mediating, atoning, and sanctifying work. And He declares that from His altar. You know what His altar was? It wasn't in a tent. His altar was the cross. From the cross, He cried with a loud voice, It is finished. It's accomplished. It's a perfect passive indicative verb. And you say, big deal. It is a big deal. It means a specific word that means it's completed and stands complete forever. It's finished and the result is forever done. It stands complete. That's why an accurate picture of Jesus is not one still on the cross, but one seated in heaven. He's seated in heaven. He's not on the cross any longer. His work is done. The priest in the tabernacle, not only did the people come back to the tabernacle year after year to remind them that their sins weren't taken away, but the priests in the tabernacle stand fulfilling their ministry of offering sacrifices. They stand. But Jesus Christ, our great high priest, is seated in heaven because His work has been finished. It stands forever finished. And the next time that He'll rise is when He rises to come again and claim the earth. <laughs> He never needs to rise and offer another sacrifice because the full payment of our sins have been made in the past and the effect of that payment endures throughout eternity. In Jesus, God came near. He became personal. Through Jesus, we enter His presence. We enter God's presence. And by Jesus, God is, is revealed to us. The third way Jesus reveals God is the incomprehensible God became plain. He is the unfathomable God revealed to us. God didn't just become a man to be what we could never be because of our sin. He didn't just come to us because we could never come to Him. In the person of Jesus Christ, He teaches us what God is really like. Do you remember the blessing that Adam and Eve had in the garden? when it said that they walked with God in the cool of the day, they fellowshiped with the Lord, what do you think they talked about? They talked about God. <laughs> God, in the cool of the day, with two people innocent, apart from sin, before the fall, they conversed with God, and God shared with them about who He was. God is the most beautiful one in all of creation, all of the universe, all of, all of eternity. And they get to delight in Him and who He was. And then after sin, that communion was broken. You can't learn about God in the same way because there's a veil, there's sin, there's blindness, there's, there's selfishness, there's, there's all of those things. But in the person of Jesus Christ, we're taught again. God walks with us in the cool of the day again. And yet now there's a curse. But He still talks to us. He reveals to us who He's really like, what He's really like. Do you know how many gods there are in the world? You don't know an exact number. I don't either. I guess you could probably say as many as there are people. <laughs> there are thousands of them, though. Thousands codified and classified and defined by, by all types of people. I'm sure we probably, probably don't even know some gods that some tribe has designed in their own image in the, in the jungle somewhere. There are thousands of God, gods because man doesn't really know who the true God is. 
So he creates gods in his own image. Gods with a little g. Some are vengeful and punish people's enemies because people feel helpless and helpless to do anything. So he's a vengeful. They make a god who's, who's, who's wrathful. He's vengeful. He's going to punish. He's going to get you back for what you've done to me. Some are wise. Some of these gods are wise and know the mysteries of life because people feel limited by the boundaries of their own understanding. Some are kind and non-judgmental because people are aware of their guilt, but they can't cease from sinning. Some gods are carnal because they, they love sin. Some gods revel in, in drunkenness and in immorality. They want a God who per- approves of what they enjoy doing. But what is God really like? Is He like a grandfather that, that understands and overlooks your sin? Is He, is he a harsh disciplinarian? who is happy if you obey perfectly, but, but, but ready to, to quickly punish you if you step out of line? Is he, a, is he a great need meter? Is he there for you whenever, whenever your heart has a want? I can tell you who God is, and I can tell you exactly what he's like. Just read this book about Jesus Christ. Jesus reveals to us what God is really like God was made fully known to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He uniquely displayed the glory of God. That's what John 1, 14 says. You can turn back there if you haven't already. Do verse 14 again. The Word became flesh, personal, dwelt among us. It's the presence. And here is God being made plain and And we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and and truth. The word behold, we beheld His glory. We we saw His glory. It's the idea to study, to be a spectator of something in order to comprehend it. It's what people do. You might think that they're weird, but it's what people do when, when they go to an art gallery. You ever been to an art gallery and you watch somebody just standing there in front of one painting, staring? That's the idea of this word. People stand for long periods of time, look at the painting, inspecting every brush stroke. One goes this way, another goes that way. Look at how the artist put, the, put this touch of light here and this, this touch of, of color there. This is this word... We beheld His glory means. And yet I'm afraid some people don't look at Christ that way. I'm afraid some people know Christianity, but they don't know Christ. Some people treat the portrait of Christ that's put on display more like a, rather than an art lover, more like a, a, a middle schooler on a field trip that, that just can't wait to get through the, get through the, the museum to, to get to the snack bar. What is your Christian life if Christ is not your love? What, what is your Christian life? What motivates you if it's not to know Him and the, and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering? I mean, what is Christianity if it's not knowing God and, and, and knowing Him more and more every day and being able to know Him because your sins are forgiven and you know that they're forgiven? What, what is it other than that? Is a person who draws near to him and, and then desires to know him and then in knowing him desires to please him, not themselves. Jesus is where we look to know God. During his earthly ministry, he gave us a glimpse of the very glory of God. What is God like? Look at, look at Jesus. 
Is God kind? Was Jesus kind? <laughs> yes. Is God merciful? Was Jesus merciful? Is there hope? Does Jesus offer hope? Jesus Christ displayed all of who God is because He was God. He was full of grace and truth. That's a reference to it. It's a reference to the Old Testament as well. John's a good Jew. It's a reference to Exodus 34. We beheld His glory, the revelation of God, and He was full of grace and truth. It's a reference to Exodus 34 where God reveals Himself. Exodus 34, 5 and 6, the Lord passed before him, that's Moses, and proclaimed. He didn't just give Moses his name. Moses said, I, I want to see you. I want to behold you. And you remember what God says, you can't do that. I'll hide you in the, in the cleft of the rock. I'll, I'll, I'll cover you there to where you won't be incinerated by my holiness. And after I pass by, you can see the, the, the wake uh, that, my, that my glory leaves. And as the glory of the Lord passes by Moses, God Himself declares something about Himself. He he tells Moses. Here's what the Lord proclaimed. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquities, transgression and sin, And yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren of the third and fourth generation. When Moses asked God to reveal himself, God could not let Moses look upon him, so he revealed himself in speech. These are God's own words about himself. What will God say about himself? He says, I am full of grace and truth. That's what he says. I am merciful and gracious and slow to anger, forgiving iniquity and sin. I'm full of grace. And I'm full of truth. I will not let the guilty go unpunished. That's what he says. But do you realize what John's saying here? Where God once revealed Himself in speech, when Moses could not look upon Him and behold Him, God cannot fulfill Moses' requests. Now... God doesn't reveal Himself in, just in His words. His Word became flesh. He reveals Himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And you can look upon Him. You can behold Him. You can know Him. You can study Him. Jesus Christ is the complete fullness of all that grace and mercy, embodied, God, robed in human flesh. We, still, the divine glory is veiled, but, but we're able to see Him. You can see Him as well as hear Him. You can behold Him and you can hear His words. You're hearing His words this morning. Jesus displays God to us, and as we behold Him, He explains the the Father. And if you doubt that, look at verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. That's Christ. Jesus and God are not different. Jesus reveals God in all of His fullness. Hebrews 1 tells us that God at various times and various ways 
Times past spoke to the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son. Jesus said to his disciples before he went to the cross, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Did you ever wonder if Jesus is the creator who gave life and is described here in the Gospel of John as the light, the one who reveals God? If He's life and He's light and He's our Creator, why people had to be told that the light has come? Why do people need to be told that Jesus is God? Why does light need an announcement? Why do you need to be told? It was like one writer said, if I'm in a dark room and, and someone turns the light switch on, I don't need to be told the lights are on. The light, I see the light. The light comes on. And verse 4 says, in him was life, and, and the life was the light of men. When someone turns the, the lights on, when it's dark, everyone knows that the light has come. They, they see the light, unless someone's blind. If you're a blind man in a dark room, somebody turns the light on, you can't see the light, can you? You don't even know the light's been turned on. Someone has to tell you that the light has been turned on. And then you can hear. So it is with us. Light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The light comes and it shines, but we have no idea. It's there, so we must be told the light has come. And without that announcement, they would have no idea. And that's what John the Baptist was sent to do. The light has come. And that's what the John was sent to do. That's what I'm here to do, to tell you that the light has come. The light is on. He has come. It's the person of Jesus Christ. He can forgive your sins. He can wash you clean. He can make you right with God. You can know God through Him. The real question is not who is Jesus. The Bible tells us He is God. He's the infinite God who became personal. He's the unreachable God who became present. He's the incomprehensible God who became plain. The real question is, what do you say about who He is? Is He a baby in a manger scene? A teacher? A special man? Or is He God? Who came personally? Who is present? And who made God plain to take away your sin? The answer to that my friend, is the door, is the key to the door of heaven or what will keep you shut outside for for all eternity. And for the Christian who understands that, that brings us great joy, doesn't it? Great joy. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, that same joy can be yours if you'll repent and you'll believe. Nothing else needs to be done. Your sins are your sins. But God's grace through the blood of Christ is greater than all of your sins. Won't you bow your heads?